0: The National Archives podcast series, The Life Experience of Lady Nairn, presented by Dr Nicola Cowmeadow. This talk was recorded on the 11th of March 2016 at the National Archives Q. A Jacobite in British history was a supporter of the exiled Stuart King, James II, and his descendants after the Glorious Revolution. The political importance of the Jacobite movement extended from 1688 until at least the 1750s and included five major attempts to restore the exiled Stuart King and his two heirs. And here's the sons of James II, James, Francis Edward, the old pretender, and then of course Charles, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender. Now both of these men will feature in my talk today but my focus is not on them but on noble women who were Jacobites and who supported their cause. My thesis was entitled Scottish Noble Women, the Family and Scottish Politics from 1688 till 1707 and I worked on family archives, letters, journals and documents from the National Archive in Edinburgh and the amazing collection at Blair Castle, home of the Murrays of Atholl. It was discovering the letters of Catherine, the first Duchess of Athol, that I started my research in third year at the University of Dundee. And during the course, um, Professor Christopher Watley, uh, who I worked with later, and Dr Derek Patrick, took us to Blair as part of a visit as in, in the course. And we were shown letters from around the period of the Glorious Revolution. And my bundle were all from Catherine to her husband. In the end, the collection at Blair was so comprehensive that Catherine was the only Scottish noblewoman for that period that had almost her entire lifetime in letters. So many other noblewomen do not leave much at all. Um, a few letters here a scattering there. The fourth Duke of Hamilton, a great union figure at that time, uh, had a sister, uh, Susan, the Countess of Dundonald. Um, but it's only the letters that she wrote to him or that were about him that survive. She doesn't have a collection uh, in its own right. So Blair's remarkable for having its own archive. And this is the woman who's the focus of my talk today, Margaret, Lady Nairn. In 1906, a historian described her as bright among the honoured names of those women who thus took part in the troubles of their country. She was apparently someone who was born of heroic blood and who handed her traditions of loyalty and chivalry to the Stuart cause down the generations of her family. She appears to have exerted a considerable influence on people around her. As well as instilling her own offspring with firm Jacobite beliefs, her brother-in-law, the first Duke of Athol, would later denounce her for ruining three of his sons by seducing them to the Jacobite cause and the rising of 1715. This Lady Nairn was noted for entertaining Charles Edward Stuart prior to the rising of 1745 and of commanding men and arms from her bed at this time. And this was only two years before she died, aged 75. Women involved in the Jacobite movement have been recognised for notable or heroic deeds, but their actions are often overly romanticised. The young Anna Radcliffe, Countess of Derwentwater, has been immortalised for throwing herself, quite literally, upon the king to beg for her husband's life in 1716. Similarly, Winifred Maxwell, Lady Nithsdale, is famous only for her role in her husband's escape from the tower in 1716 on the eve of his execution. Lady Nithsdale dressed her husband in women's clothes to smuggle him out of prison and concealed him in London before he fled to the continent. And this is one of the most famous of Jacobite heroines here, painted by Alan Ramsay, Flora MacDonald, and if you look online at the National Archives, you can search for an account that Flora MacDonald gave when she was accused of helping the prince escape. The historian Stan and Eneditch commented that the history of 18th century Highlands has been written as though no woman other than Flora MacDonald ever lived there. And I use this extremely romanticized image of Flora meeting Bonnie Prince Charlie to illustrate the kind of representation we have of Jacobite women and possibly what we expect and have become accustomed to seeing. Now, these images are typical of our romantic perception. All the elements are, are here in the paintings. We have women wearing military-style riding jackets, the white rose, the rose and the rosebud combined, which signified the king and his heirs. And we also see the blue bonnets and the white cockade. Many representations, beautiful women and daring acts. But this issue of seeing just the heroic or audacious behaviour of these women has prompted me to ask, where are the real women behind the legends and the romance? Where are the unromantic parts of their lives? What did they do? When did they decide to become Jacobites? Did they indeed do so or were they prompted by husbands or family? Could they make their own choices? I've no intention to denigrate women's heroic actions or to challenge their commitment to Jacobitism. However, these women only feature in histories due to their Jacobite activities. They're there for an instant, an illustration at a certain point. We don't see their whole careers. And this narrow approach conceals their abilities, their rules and their responsibilities. In order to perceive more than a one-dimensional character, it's necessary to look beyond Jacobitism. Women's activities encompassed estate management, business and domestic issues. It required the literary capabilities to create and maintain family connections and diverse networks. And these were used to share information and report on state affairs and politics. And these activities were generally motivated by the need to preserve and promote the family interest. The family was like a big firm. Many Scottish noblewomen excelled in these areas. And as this case study of Lady Nairn will demonstrate... The label of Jacobite obscures the reality when it's used as the only means of defining their experience. Margaret Lady Nairn was the second child of Robert, First Lord Nairn and Margaret Graham, daughter of Patrick Graham of Innsbreco, born in sixteen seventy three She was their only surviving child. Her father, a royalist, was captured after the Battle of Eth in sixteen fifty one and was imprisoned in the Tower until his release at the Restoration in 1661. Twenty years later, he was created Lord Nairn, with a special remainder that his title would pass to Lord George Murray, youngest son of the Marquess of Athol, or failing him, to any other son who should be the husband of his daughter, Margaret. And this meant that Lady Nairn was bound to marry a son from the Murray of Athol family, and accordingly a contract was drawn up in 1676 between her and Lord George Murray. However, Lord George developed health problems and the original contract had to be set aside. A new contract was drawn up in 1690 between Lady Nairn and Lord George's brother, Lord William. Margaret had fallen heir to her father's title after his death in 1683 and when she married William in September 1690, he became the second Lord Nairn. Poor Lord George died a year later. Now this rather mercenary matchmaking was not unusual. Rather than being pawns within the negotiations, and given that Robert Nairn had died in 1683, the Nairn women were negotiating their own terms. A letter from Margaret the Dowager Lady Nairn to the Murray family in 1690 suggests that when drawing up the new contract, the terms had been altered, and this was not to her satisfaction. She graciously suggested that this was probably a misunderstanding, but stated all her friends could not understand how another paper comes to be drawn up with things worded in it that is not in the first contract, and that she and her daughter would be ruined should they yield to this. Although she esteemed Lord William, she would not condescend to it, and suggested she could have settled my daughter long ago and gotten conditions far better than we ask. Now, this is a mild threat. And it was followed by the warning that the dowager loves not to be slighted and not tell it, so her tone and intentions were clear. The young couple were married within the year, so terms must have been resolved. And this would have been a useful experience for young Margaret, who eventually went on to demonstrate similar skills in later life when making advantageous marriages for her own daughters. In doing so, she was strengthening the family's Jacobite connections. Following the flight of James II to France with his wife and son, James's daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange, succeeded in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. William, 2nd Lord Nairn, took his place in Parliament in 1690. Now, there was some debate over his right to do so, but this obstacle was overcome, and Nairn took the required oath to serve William and Mary. But by 1693, he was fined for non-attendance at Parliament, and then excused from attending because of ill health. In fact, his attendance in Parliament at this time was actually part of a Jacobite plan to restore King James by parliamentary means. When this attempt failed, Lord Nairn did not attend Parliament again in either William or Anne's reign. Lord Nairn appears to have suffered from poor health, but being ill was often a convenient reason for nobles to excuse themselves from service to the monarch. Now, this tactic had been used by Lord Nairn's father, John Murray, the Marquess of Athol, in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of the Glorious Revolution. The Marquess removed himself from his home at Blair Castle and it fell to his eldest son, Lord John Murray, to steer the family and their vassals through the immediate Jacobite uprising, instigated in 1689 by John Graham of Claverhouse, the Viscount Dundee. The family history notes Murray's adherence to King William while his parents retreated to Bath on health grounds. The family home at Blair Castle was a focus for Jacobites at this time, because Viscount Dundee wished to gain the considerable support that the men of Athol might have provided, although Lord Murray wished to prevent local men from going over to Dundee. One letter from Murray's wife Catherine, who was at Falkland Palace some distance away, states that Lord William had been there to give her news, so he appears to have avoided being drawn into the blockade of of Blair Castle at that time, and the subsequent battle at Killiecrankie, in which Viscount Dundee was killed. Not so a younger brother, Lord James Murray. He defied his older brother and joined the rebel forces. But thereafter, he repented of his actions and apologised to the family. And some young men got off with rash behaviour, which was all put down to their to their youth. And this episode highlights how loyalties within elite families could vary, And this has always been regarded as a necessary strategy for securing and preserving noble families in times of uncertainty. They need a a foot in both camps, as it were. At this time, however, Lord William appears to have no significant role. So whether or not he was a Jacobite at this time, it's difficult to say. But what of his wife? Now, this image of Margaret Lady Nairn is taken from a much later publication which deals with the Murray of Athol family's role in military matters. And it was edited by the Eighth Duchess of Athol. Lady Nairn was sister-in-law to the man who would eventually become the first Duke of Athol and she was obviously part of a close circle of women within the Murray of Athol family. Lady Nairn corresponded with Catherine, the first Duchess of Athol and she also wrote to Margaret, Countess of Panmure, who's Catherine's sister. Now, Margaret and Catherine were daughters of Anne, the Duchess of Hamilton, before their marriages so we're looking at a family with some very powerful connections and relations. Upon her marriage, Lady Nairn altered in status from being a nobleman's daughter to being a nobleman's wife, and she fulfilled her duty by producing four sons and then eight daughters. Her early letters detailed the pressures on her time when dealing, as all women had to, with domestic matters. She shared her family news with her relatives and had a close confidant in Margaret, Countess of Panmure. In one letter of 1702, Lady Nair complained of problems with breastfeeding that had led to seven months of poor health, which she blamed for making her fit scarce to do anything. In another letter, she apologised for not writing to Lady Panmure as the birth of a huge girl had taken all my good blood with her, which made me so weak that I was within a few degrees of a decay. Illness stifled her activities, limited her correspondence. And it's important to bear in mind the challenges childbirth, raising children and managing the home placed on noblewomen's times and energies. Lady Nairn's letters outline domestic concerns, seeking advice on purchasing furniture and material, making clothes, exchanging textiles and plaids, and also obtaining the services of reliable tradesmen and weavers. She discussed her thrift, and her interest in making candles and buttons, sewing patterns and exchanging food gifts. These activities are certainly in the remit of noble women but Lady Nairn had further interests to which she devoted significant time. Her letters actually outline an interest in reading, an interest in poetry and some knowledge of philosophy. In one letter she referred to specific works and quoted phrases She was relating this to her own life experience and therefore she was demonstrating an ability to reflect on her life through her reading and also express this in her writing. Her letters suggest an intelligent woman, knowledgeable about current affairs and self-aware. She wrote with great affection to Lady Panmuir, confessing that she can hide nothing from her. And there's nothing to suggest that Lady Nairn was educated out with the norms for a woman of her status, but her writing is quite exact and well-structured. In comparison with some other noblewomen of that period, her spelling and handwriting is superior. And just for comparison, I want to show you a letter written by another noblewoman in 1709, and I've not altered the spelling here, so you can see what the letters are like. Um, She's referring to a man called Gorthy, who is her husband's agent, and she suggests that Gorthy will write and tell her husband all it's doing regarding business and the estate. But in this letter, she actually asks for the Tatler, which was, was, was newly published that year, or the year before. So her wish to have the news and paper suggests that her writing might let her down, um, but she by no means prevents her from sharing news or from seeking uh, fresh news. She wants to keep up with what's happening. And so we find that Lady Nairn, in comparison with some other noble women of that period, um, has superior writing skills. Lady Nairn was entertaining and frank. Her writing also highlights the value that was placed on female friendship, and it kind of suggests the loneliness of women who were isolated on remote estates, bringing up their families. Noble women who cultivated their literary abilities were really broadening their sphere of influence and activity. Not only did this combat isolation, but it allowed noble women to achieve greater levels of autonomy. Lady Nairn's letters cover a variety of interests, opinions and family issues, and they do, of course, have snippets of news and questions which hint at current affairs. Lady Nairn also mocked the piety of her sister-in-law, Lady Catherine, and she tended to laugh at the religious scruples of the older Athol family members. She was particularly intrigued by the notion that the devoutly Presbyterian Lady Catherine might have attended Episcopal church services one Christmas. Uh, Now, Lady Catherine and her mother, Anne, the Duchess of Hamilton, were staunch Presbyterians and they did not celebrate Christmas. So Lady Nairn speculated on the likelihood of Lady Catherine converting, asking Lady Panmure, what can be more Episcopal than to hear a sermon and eat of a goose on Yule Day? Now, this teasing masks a deeper issue within the family in that two differing religious perspectives were being accommodated. The Athol family were Episcopalian, but Lady Catherine came from a Presbyterian family, Differences in faith were common in noble families, and the women you can see supported one another through birth and loss. They also argued and voiced opinions, but they seemed to be mindful of religious differences and preserving good relations generally. Lady Nairn admitted to Lady Panmuir that she and Lady Catherine had many and many a dispute, and she welcomed Lady Panmuir's support so that she might bear up against all our adversaries and to come off, in my opinion, to advantage. So she clearly liked to win an argument. Now it's not clear whether this was referring to religious or political arguments, but the impression of these women holding strong opinions and arguing their case is quite unmistakable. Supporting the family interest, however, was not always possible for Lady Nairn because the poor health of Lord Nairn created further issues within the family. Lady Nairn had to make her husband's apologies when he was prevented from carrying out his duty or responsibilities. In the main, these letters excuse Nairn from failing to attend meetings with 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 other people, generally his brother, and there's evidence that Lord Nairn did indeed suffer genuine health problems. His symptoms are frequently described, but in one letter of May 1710, it's an ulcer in his liver which was diagnosed, which the family doctor suggested would need an operation. In other instances, an accurate account of Lord Nairn's uh, health is actually uh, quite obscure, However, the fact was that Lady Nairn made excuses for him, and this highlights the level of support that was expected within important political families. And the fact that Nairn did not attend Parliament is quite significant. Athol and his brother-in-law James, the fourth Duke of Hamilton, led the opposition to the Union of 1707. In the years leading up to this event, another family member taking his place in Parliament and supporting the family's political stance would have been an important source of support. Nairn, apparently unable to take his place on health grounds, was equally unwilling to attend in principle. And what is important to note is that this was something Lady Nairn supported and actively defended. These letters demonstrate Lady Nairn fully understood the position of her husband in relation to the demands of the family and their separate obligation to Jacobite associates. Lady Nairn was not only a personal support to her husband, but she was also a vital part of family and Jacobite networks. And she worked diligently to handle these demands, to manage crisis and control damage limitation. And she did so for many years without bringing any censure on herself. The greater part of her letters were concerned with current affairs, politics, court life and of course Jacobitism. And this subject matter probably explains why these particular letters have survived. And the domestic details might be considered more incidental, although they're what often interests people as well. Nonetheless, considering all the information her letters provide highlights Lady Nairn's aptitude. In addition to her sophisticated literary skills, she was also an amateur architect, designer and planter. She and her husband undertook the building of a new home in 1709 and it appears she was in charge of drawing the plans, uh, providing others with copies and discussing these with the architects John Fair and Sir William Bruce. She also discussed these in detail with John Campbell, Earl of Bredalbin. She sent sketches of parts of the work, told Bredalbin what she had instructed the Masons to do and discussed the cost of materials. Now when she wrote to Bredalbin about these kinds of matters she tended to show great deference and she always excused her efforts and tasks that were generally not within a woman's remit. And she did this to ensure that she was not going to be criticised for this kind of behaviour. Her abilities however would have been highly prized and the Duke of Athol asked her to draw a draft of the courthouse at Logie Rate in 1707. She modestly agreed, stating, I can't do it well, but if you send me the dimensions, I shall do my best. And this shows that her interest in designing and planning had begun long before her own house was built in 1709, so it's possible she was developing these skills over time. She's also credited with encouraging the Duke of Athol to build some additions to his home at Blair, she said her husband had agreed on the designs and uh, she'd called John uh, Fair who had agreed with this and said that what is, I propose is easily done without altering the ground story. So she was actually backing up what she'd um, planned for the building herself by having other people uh, look at the designs and agree with her. Now Lady Nairn was keen to acquire ma- materials for the best prices, asking Bridalbin for slates and securing the great timbers needed for the house from John Erskine, the Earl of Mar. She later asked Athol for permission to cut trees and for help shifting timber and in return she promised him assistance in providing men to help him with bridge building and repairs on the Athol estates. And she used these mail connections to secure favours and she also informed the others when making her requests. Now using minor issues as a reason to write and then incorporating details about other correspondence had a multiple effect. In the first instance, it's a genuine way of maintaining good relations with neighbours and securing useful advice or support. However, in letting it be known she was calling on favours from others, Lady Nairn was revealing her connections and admitting who responded to her requests. And this would have been done in the hope of inducing the others to respond favourably as well and to be aware that she was gaining this kind of patronage from other people. A further effect was the expansion of her influence and the small issues such as advice on masons or securing materials, these were often introductory. Lady Nairn's actual reason for writing was to subtly encourage particular relationships to flourish. So a further role we can attribute to her was one of mediator. Lady Nairn was deferential toward Bradalbin and she constantly urged him to visit on the pretext of inspecting the work and the grounds. However, these requests had more to do with business between Bridalbin, Nairn and Athol. After a long breach with the Murray of Athol family, Bridalbin and Athol were reconciled in 1707. It's not clear what Lady Nairn did, but in one letter to Athol in 1707, she professed herself, very lucky that what I wrote to Earl Bridalbin pleases you so well. I did not think you would have heard such a trifle as a letter of mine. More modesty again, but what she'd written to Bridalbin is not specified. But he was someone Lady Nairn respected, and working to strengthen Athol's connections with Bredalbon was an important objective. In August 1707, her husband wrote to Athol saying that Bradalbin was keen to meet, but was indisposed, being more in his bed than out of it, although he wanted nothing more than the honour of seeing Athol at his home. Nairn suggested that Bredalbon was one of the oldest men of quality in the kingdom and would soon go off the stage. So the Nairns appear to be keen to see a reconciliation and prevent the feuding between the families. Bridalbum was an important ally to Lord and Lady Nairn and ensuring his relationship with Athol was managed she appears to be encouraging the Jacobite connections of the Murray of Athol family and this is understandable given her own beliefs but it's how she achieved this that's important. It occurs as part of her wider activities, seeking patronage, seeking advice and through her skills in drawing, the building, the planting, and of course, the socialising. And this indicates that noble women had a substantial role in areas previously understood to be in the predominantly male or public sphere. And noble women were implicitly understood by men to be assuming this role. Bradalbin and Athel do not seem troubled that she wrote both to them and about them. Now at this time, Lady Nairn had an extremely good relationship with Athel. He lost his wife in January of 1707. Catherine had travelled to be at Hamilton with her mother and she took ill very suddenly and died before he could reach her. Lady Nairn mourned the loss of his duchess and was delighted when he sent her his wife's plaid, writing, everything that belongs to her shall always be dear to me. In 1709 she was again writing to Lady Panmure, but this time sending condolences on the death of Athol's eldest son, it's a terrible loss to the family, the son and heir killed in his youth and so um, soon after his mother had died. Lady Nairn added at this time, though, that she wished this bad news may have the good effect to put matrimony out of Athol's thoughts, although she much doubted it. So by 1709, the Duke of Athol was thinking of remarrying. And why would this bother Lady Nairn? Well, in an earlier letter to Lad- Lady Panmuir, she'd expressed her horror at the idea that was begun an intrigue with Mrs Mary Ross, Lord Ross's daughter, when he was at Edinburgh, and that they were now come to Dunkeld to promote and carry it on. So Lady Nairn then delivered her opinion on Mary Ross, stating that this young woman is young and a Presbyterian is all I shall say, but the world is not so modest in their discourses about her. And also, how unfit such a one is for a wife to him is very obvious to everybody has a kindness for him. There's not very much kindness in her words, however. A Jacobite bride might have been out of the question, but it seems Lady Nairn would have at least preferred an Episcopalian. She was keen to refute any word of an impending marriage to Bridalbin, although she knew very well who Athol was courting. Athol was married to Lady Mary Ross in 1710. And in remaining true to the Presbyterianism he had shared with his first wife, he was in effect signalling his intention to remain out with Jacobite intrigues. And after this time, there came a breach between Lady Nairn and the Duke of Athol. Like all noblemen with many sons, Athol faced difficulties with his boys as they grew older regarding finance and, and the choices they were making about their future careers. Issues regarding the young men's positions, travel, expenses, and debts and appeals for money were causing a strain in their relationships. Athel seems particularly harsh, and he allowed many pleas for support to go unanswered. One typical response to a plea for money was that he was sorry to hear of the hardships you have been under, and hoped it would have the good effect to make you follow my advice in time coming. It would appear that three of his sons did not follow his advice, and they did join the Jacobite forces in the uprising of 1715. Athol blamed Lady Nairn. He said, there cannot be a worse woman. As letters between Lady Nairn and Athol do not survive for this period, it's difficult to ascertain her role. But the previous family difficulties faced by the young men, while not unusual, would also have had an impact. And the death of their mother, Lady Catherine, in 1707, had also removed an important source of support from her son. She very often mediated between the boys and their father. Athol's sons, Will and lived in exile after the 15, um, and after returning to Scotland for the 45, he died in 1746. Lord Charles was reprieved by 1717, but he died unmarried in 1720. Lord George Murray, acknowledged as an important military leader of the Jacobite forces in 1745, he lived in exile until his death in 1760. So it was left to Lord James Murray to succeed his father as the second duke. In seducing her nephews to the cause, Lady Nairn crossed a line, and she must have believed Jacobitism was worth this harsh reaction from a person like Athel, who had once valued her. She did, however, rely on him in the aftermath of the 15. A consequence of these rebellions meant arrest for men, exile for others, and the loss of estates and land. She and other women in similar circumstances wrote to family members to come to their aid. After all she'd said about Lady Mary Ross, both she and Lady Panmuir found themselves indebted to the efforts of Athol's second wife because she used her own connections to gain support for the wider family who were under threat. Lady Panmuir has been described as unctuously deferential to the second Duchess of Athol, and that despite her pedigree being considerably less exalted than Lady Panmure's, Uh, Lady Mary Ross's support of these related women actually confirmed uh, Lady Mary Ross in her new role and through her actions at this time, her social ascendancy was acknowledged. In this instance, it was really in the new Duchess of Athol's interest to assist her stepsons and accommodate her sisters-in-law. Jacobite women have been acknowledged and credited with responding admirably to the shock of rebellion and its aftermath, particularly the wives of Jacobites who fled into exile. These elite women found themselves catapulted out of their accustomed sphere and into a new hostile public world of bailiffs, bankers, lawyers and politicians. Given Lady Nairn's background in administration, her networks and connections as well as her keen interest in politics and Jacobitism, was this hostile public world really so new for every woman? Professor Daniel Zetche suggests that once Lady Panmure emerged from her initial depression, she became adept at judicial and political manoeuvring. And eventually she retrieved a substantial part of the Panmure estates. Now this would be quite remarkable had she developed the necessary skills to deal with these issues overnight. But the reality of noblewomen's experiences suggests their abilities developed over time. The crisis of exile and having their jointures and estates seized merely allowed them to publicly participate in areas previously denied them. Women and men could be critical of women who overstepped the boundaries and who were perceived to have control of their husbands. Contemporary writing suggests Jacobite women could be perceived as shrews in their families and scolds in politics, that they were tigresses and barbarous women whose husbands and kin rebelled to escape them the Jacobite Earl of Mar, approved of the zeal and courage of the woman who helped him maintain secret correspondences, and Lady Nairn was actually one of the women who was in written contact with Mar, and she used the name Mrs Meller. However, Mar also found that some Jacobite women were a nuisance, calling them over-busied, and he complained, I cannot with discretion get quit of them. So this suggests even in Jacobite circles, there were limits to female behaviour. Lady Nairn had been mindful of the boundaries and respectful of social constraints, but only up to a point. The Rebellion of 1715 can be seen as the catalyst which changed her behaviour, and this impacted on her position and how she was regarded. Prior to the 15, she had previously dealt with the consequences of Jacobitism in 1708, so she knew the implications. Lord Nairn had been an intermediary delivering news of a possible invasion through Scotland by the French, and he was arrested in March 1708. Lady Nairn journeyed south to petition Queen Anne to release her husband, and the letters she sent on this occasion illustrate her talent for acquiring information and highlight an additional role of informer and reporter. Five letters report significantly on her journey south and of her audience with Queen Anne, but they also feature aspects which clearly interested Lady Nairn. In this way, her letters give us some idea of public interests and other issues. Travelling to York in 1708, she was in the company of all our friends and she sent Lady Panmure a first-hand account of troops at Berwick. She'd ascertained from the troops that they were not going north and she was relieved to report, I hope no more of our countrymen will be put to trouble. Panmure was not arrested at this time, unlike near. At her next stop, she detailed how she'd met a chap called James Bain, Who looked favourably on her as a fellow Scot, and with whom she talked of the affairs of the General Assembly and Commission, and also discoursed of the Union, which he, as a Scotsman, I found was not very fond of. She reported that, according to Bain, the English feared the Scots more than the French, and most of all, a party of Papists and Jacobites amongst them. So she's giving all this kind of information just generally. Discussing religious and political issues, Lady Nairn obviously did not disclose anything that would hinder her inquiries. She spoke with other people, a Mrs Norton who had been in danger of being imprisoned as a Jacobite herself. And so meeting her, Lady Nairn becomes aware of people she might contact in London who were in a similar position. When her journey was completed, she found that few people in London cared as much to be thought friendly to me and that she had not made many visits since she came. She was eventually granted an audience with the Queen and she gives a very detailed account and describes the monarch's attitude and great civility. Lady Nairn, of course, uh, always a storyteller, I think, distressed her own attempts to convey to the Queen the attitude of the Scots, so I think she plays up her own part in this, but it's quite an, an amusing read as well. A crucial point regarding Lady Nairn's journey south in 1708 is that nothing about the experience appears novel or new to her. She's adapted to the situation quickly, she used her connections in order to appeal to the right people, she knew how to conduct herself and express her own opinions. She's not writing to Lady Panmure asking for advice or worrying over protocol or repercussions, nor was she requesting instructions. She's acting independently with a secure knowledge of her responsibilities and with the necessary expertise to carry these out. What should be borne in mind is that women could not create such knowledge and expertise out of a vacuum. Lady Nairn's behaviour was something learned, something gleaned from the people around her, most probably from her mother and other close relationships. The Jacobitism of her husband merely provided an opportunity to exercise these skills. It was not in itself the reason for learning them. Similarly to many noble women in the aftermath of 1715, Lady Nairn was adapting already existing abilities and skills, not acquiring new ones. When Lord Nairn joined the rebellion in 1715, Lady Nairn had a choice. She could support her husband while keeping her own views private and her behaviour suitably circumspect. Or she could, as she chose to do, behave in ways which brought condemnation from her relatives. In the years prior to the 15, she had remained within acceptable social parameters, which she endorsed and understood. Her decision to change her behaviour severed her from some parts of her family and her social group and this, surely the most heroic act of an early modern noblewoman, is rarely commented upon. It's important to bear in mind that it was a choice and not an involuntary consequence. In later years, her behaviour would be mirrored by her daughters. Charlotte, Lady Lude, was one of her daughters and was called upon to support the Jacobite cause and even took part in commandeering Blair Castle for the arrival of Prince Charles Edward Stuart in 1745. Thomas Bizet, agent at Blair, reported on the arrival of the Jacobites at Blair, and as a PS to his letter, he said, Lady Lude is here with them and behaves like a light giglet and hath taken upon herself to be sole mistress of the house. Um, His attitude, his tone there is one of um, disgust, really. Giglet meaning a frolicsome, giddy or wanton woman. So, however Lady Lud might have disgraced herself in the eyes of others, she herself believed she was furthering the cause. Yet again, in the aftermath, however, Lady Nairn had to defend her daughters and seek support from her family. She died in Nairn House on November 14th, 1747. And this is a later descendant of Lady Nairn, uh, Carolina Lady Nairn. Um, um, And this woman actually um, wrote many of the lovely Jacobite songs, and I'm doing some research on her at the moment with a view to actually combining uh, a a presentation on her with some of the songs which have been lost over the years, um, because she's given us some of the most romantic Jacobite songs uh, and memorable ones uh, which celebrate the cause. Now, exploring Lady Nairn's actions in 1708, her involvement in 1715, and her later support of the forty-five should not overly influence how to read Lady Nairn's earlier letters. Seeing her actions through the lens of Jacobitism rather negates the varied and complex role she managed within a wider family network over a very long period of time. Defining her as a Jacobite suggests that she had only one route to take. The opposite was true and fully examining Lady Nairn's letters provides evidence of her opinions her keen interest in political and economic issues, her religious awareness and her many practical abilities. She was operating in much the same way as many other Scottish noblewomen and developed these skills and abilities over time. A decision on her personal active commitment to Jacobitism would also have been determined over time and influenced by many factors. Analysis of Lady Nairn's writing suggests she steered a diverse course through family relationships, carefully negotiating her roles and her choices. And this to me reveals her to be more than just a Jacobite. The study of Jacobitism is becoming a more inclusive one. Women were Jacobites, their experience is not peripheral and including all aspects of their lives provides the fullest picture of the Jacobite mentality. Integrating a more appropriate female perspective into Jacobite historiography is a crucial part of assimilating the experience of Scottish noblewomen into the broader context of Scottish and European history. Seeing more than simply a Jacobite heroine is an important first step. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.